0: Waiting for you in the next hour, it's a stand-up comic who joined a Fear of Flying support group at Boston's Logan Airport called Logan's Heroes. It's a band that's never once played the state of Texas without a disaster striking. Thank God we are in Oregon. And it's America's most read sex and relationship advice columnist who shares this piece of heretical advice in his new book.
1: Cheating isn't okay ever, except for those times when it is okay. Except for those times. And except for those times when cheating isn't just okay, but absolutely, positively, and without question, the right thing to do. Except for those times, and some other times, cheating is never okay. Ever. Okay? It's, it's...
0: From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's LiveWire, with stand-up Jen Kirkman, author and activist Dan Savage, and music from the Builders and the Butchers, all coming up on LiveWire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. You're also getting ready for comedy from Faces for Radio Theater. Also, poet Scott Poole with the always relevant reflections by the pool and music from our house band, led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. (laughs) We have uh, a guest coming out in a moment, Jen Kirkman, who is a comedian and author. She's written a very funny, but I think somewhat provocative book about her decision not to have children. And... The fact that when she says that, everyone tells her that she's confused and that she secretly does want to have children, (laughs) but just hasn't figured it out yet. And I was reading the book this week, and it reminded me of the day that my kid was born, which was about 19 and a half years ago. I was a senior in high school at Nathan Hale High School. And I remember uh, my dad waking me up. In the early morning, I wasn't really allowed to see my kid's mom because after I got her pregnant, her parents separated us. Um, I guess they were worried I was going to re-impregnate her. There was going to be another baby born like two months after the first baby. So my dad woke me up and said, Tina had her baby. And I got in my parents' Fort Fairmont station wagon, and I drove towards the hospital. And um, I I went to this grocery store, and I bought some flowers. Uh, They were $12. I wrote a check. That bounced. (laughs) And I got these flowers, and I went to the hospital. And it was a pretty surreal experience because her parents and family who were there were not huge fans of mine (laughs) at this point. And they handed me the baby, and her family kind of formed like a parabola of hate (laughs) around me. I was the centerpiece of. And I remember holding this little sort of alien-looking thing and waiting for something in my brain to switch. I thought, once I hold the baby, then I'll stop being like a terrified 17-year-old, and I'll be Ward Cleaver or something. I will feel fatherdom come over me. And of course that didn't happen. So I kind of held the baby and tried to wrap my mind around it for about 15 or 20 minutes. And then I gave her back because I had a Spanish test I had to take (laughs) in like second period. So I went back to school and the whole day I walked through the day at the high school thinking like, I just became a father, you know. It was, and I didn't tell anybody about it because I was sort of embarrassed. And it took me probably about two years for that switch to flip. Um, And I don't know if there are other fathers who have had the same experience, but you know, the mother tends to bond right away. There's a very physical thing, but as the dad, I think you're kind of pretending you're not terrified of this baby for like a lot of the first year, (laughs) right? She's great. Ooh, she's terrifying, is what you're really thinking. It was about two years into my daughter's life when I went to pick her up from this daycare and being, you know, high schoolers, we didn't have a lot of money. So she was in one of those daycares you see on like Dateline NBC where it's like, it looks like one of the factory farms that feeds like McDonald's, but it's children in suburban Seattle. And I showed up and this little face, my daughter's face, like looked up at me and recognized me. Maybe it was because the conditions were pretty dire at this Dickensian daycare we had her at. But she, she looked at me, and she said, Daddy! And she ran up, and she, like, hugged me, and immediately that switch, like, flipped. And I'm not here to try to tell anybody that they should have a baby or that they shouldn't have a baby. I obviously respect people's... Um, decision in that matter. And a lot of people who are parents, I know they think long and hard about it when they decide. I was one of those parents who just listened to a song by Journey in the back of a Ford truck. So there's many ways to get to parenthood, I think is my point in this story. But I guess I think, you know, I can speak from my own experience and I would imagine a lot of the parents here sort of agree with me that, and I say this from the bottom of my heart, children will ruin your life. But they also will change your life forever. And in my case, uh, my daughter anyway, is my one meaningful contribution to this planet. And uh, I'm I'm pretty happy about that, even though it was an inauspicious start. Thank you very much. Should we do a radio show? What do you guys think? All right, let's do this. The band that you're about to hear has been known to spark a tent revival or two in their time. So tell grandma to get her anointed prayer hanky and get ready. Here with songs from their upcoming record, Western Medicine, please welcome the Builders and the Butchers.
2: Daddy went out to the yard last night, and he was dancing on his very own grave. They gave him the box and the truffler. the hammering To the yard last night, he was too far gone to be saved by the priest and the book of the cloth on the cross. You You cut the hammer and nails, 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 you cut the hammer and nails.
0: That is the builders and the butchers. They'll be back a little bit later on live wire.
3: Have you found that China yet? Not yet. There's so much stuff up here. Well, hurry, my sister will be here any minute. Just so much stuff. Okay. What is this? A bronze gravy boat? It's so dusty. Let me just rub Whoa.
4: Who oh, has awoken the genie from her great slumber?
3: Uh I'm Steve.
4: Hi, Steve. I'm the great genie from days of old I will grant you any three wishes blah 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 no wishing for more wishes you know the drill now choose carefully
3: uh I don't need to think about this at all I know exactly what I want I want to be able to fly <laughs>
4: okay what did I just say choose carefully that whole speech it just happened I'm sure the shock of seeing a genie is just throwing you off so why don't you take another shot at well, it why don't
3: why I've always wanted to fly it would be so exhilarating soaring over the countryside the view the freedom
4: do you think you're the first person to wish to fly you'll hate it use your brain for a second and think about how exhausted you'd be flying everywhere it's like running at full sprint the whole time
3: I think it would be worth it
4: for a week sure after that it would just be another kind of exercise you feel guilty for not doing
3: I guess do you
4: know how cold it is up there well,
3: I you have never... to wear
4: a parka or you'll freeze to death, but you're still sweating. I mean, why do you think birds are such jerks? Freezing? Sweat. That's why.
3: I never thought
4: And not have... to mention how brittle your bones would be on account of them being hollow. You're basically wishing for osteoporosis. Okay, okay,
3: okay, okay. okay. No flight. Um, you know, I've, I've always thought it would be cool if I could turn invisible.
4: Oh, God.
3: Uh, What? What's wrong with invisibility?
4: Nothing, except you have to be naked for it to work. That's
3: not such a big deal.
4: You can't wear glasses.
3: I can see fine without my glasses.
4: And we can see your food digesting. Gross. Yeah, it's only visible once it's part of your body. So for 23 hours, people can see it slowly digesting. What? Wait, where did Steve go? All I see is this sandwich goo floating at waist high. All
3: right. How about, like, a billion dollars? I'd I'd enjoy being rich. Oh, come on.
4: What's wrong with money? Don't you think the IRS would be interested in how you got a billion dollars? You think they'll believe a genie in a gravy boat gave it to you?
3: Jeez. Eternal life?
4: How miserable are you now? Imagine that times a thousand. The world ends, and you're just floating in the sun.
3: Super strength?
4: Enjoy helping everybody move. Just get ready for that. Man.
3: Man. You are super depressing. What happened to you?
4: It's like living for a thousand years beside the pastry case at Starbucks. All you see is people making decisions you know they'll regret. All right.
3: So nobody is ever happier after they get three wishes? Not one. Well, what should I do? Honestly? Yeah.
4: You should wish for somebody you hate to find me. Huh. Not a bad idea. Got somebody in mind?
3: Honey, I bet this bronze gravy boat would make a great present for your sister. Honey, Stephen, she'll be here any second, okay? She'll love this. She likes ugly stuff, so just grab it and let's go meet her. It's gonna be perfect.
0: That's Trisha Ferguson, Andrew Harris, and Paul Glazer. You're listening to Live Wire Radio, the show that answers your burning questions. For instance, no, we don't do the show naked. Also, stay with us, please, for author and activist Dan Savage, comic Jen Kirkman, and poet Scott Poole. And more from the builders and the butchers. We'll be right back. Okay, a quick word before we get our next guest out here. This, this next segment is probably going to contain some sexual content. So if that makes you feel uncomfortable or if you've got little kids with you, this might be a good time to turn the radio down. On the other hand, if you've been trying to figure out how to have that conversation with your kids, this could be a perfect time to just lock them in the car with the radio on while you go sit on the porch and drink a Zima for about 15 minutes or so. However, you want to play that. Our next guest is definitely the advice columnist who gets the most questions about lube. He's been writing the internationally syndicated sex advice column Savage Love for over 20 years. And in 2010, he founded the It Gets Better project with his husband, Terry. You've seen him on The Colbert Report and Real Time with Bill Maher. Plus, you've heard him on This American Life. His latest book is American Savage Insights, Slights, and Fights on Faith, Sex, Love, and Politics. Please welcome Dan Savage to Livewire. Dan, welcome to Livewire. Thanks for having me back. I, um, I was surprised in reading in the book that, that you grew up a, a pretty devout Catholic, and in fact, when your mother passed away, you really started to reapproach that faith. I think a lot of people would think that was a weird thing for a guy who writes usually about anal prolapses.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a little weird. It was weird even for me. Um, my mother died in a horrible hospital in Tucson, Arizona. And there was just, the the last thing I did for her, some people think I'm an enemy of people of faith and I hate religion and I hate people who are very religious. My mother was a very religious woman, uh, but also very liberal and progressive, a progressive American Catholic. And the last thing I did for her was run through a hospital to find a priest to perform last rites. And something about, you know, just, I describe Catholicism as a, you know, a virus that can lay dormant in your body for so long that you forget that you were ever infected. And then it can come roaring back, and after that really traumatic experience, it kind of came roaring back, and I found myself slipping into churches, not because I was suddenly believing maybe that this Jesus person actually did jump out of his grave, and maybe Mary did float into the sky, but because I was sort of communing with my mother and feeling like this space I could tap into her spirit in a way, Um, and I still slip into churches, but not during services. Um, and I'm not going to confess. Could you imagine me going to confession? <laughs> Forgive me, Father, it has been 28 years since my last confession. I hope you packed a lunch. Yeah. But really,
0: you're an atheognostic
1: or something? An agnostatheist. Okay. Sort of a combo of an agnostic and an atheist. I just, I, I am an atheist. I don't believe uh, that there's anything or anyone out there uh, scripting where tornadoes go and tsunamis. Um, but I do cross myself on airplanes, and I pray when I'm flying, and then when I land, I don't thank anybody, so I'm an ingrate. I'm an ingrate and a hypocrite, because when the plane goes into the sky, I'm devout, and when it lands, I'm yeah. like, ah, oh, whatever. Yeah. There is no God except when I'm at 30,000 feet, and then there is definitely a God, and he is protecting me.
0: Uh, you write in your new book that most of the emails, or at least the majority of the emails you field, are from uh, straight couples who are in sexless marriages.
1: Many, many, many of those emails. Um, It's depressing. Uh, The culture tells people that sex shouldn't matter, that sex is unimportant, that sex is trivial, all these other things should matter more. And what this leads people to do is uh, get into committed relationships with people that they are not sexually compatible with for the long haul. And that's a real problem because over the, over the years, that becomes a bigger and bigger issue uh, in, in a relationship. Basic fundamental sexual compatibility is important. You know, So if you have a high libido and somebody else has a really low libido, you are not a match that is going to last forever unless there's some accommodation, which is usually not granted in an opposite-sex relationship, by which I mean some degree of openness or allowance, off-leash time, That's more controversial in straight relationships than gay ones. Not because gay men are gay men, but because gay men are men. When you look at the stats, um, gay male couples are the least likely to be monogamous. They always say successfully monogamous. I say we're more likely to be successfully not monogamous. Hmm. But gay couples are the least likely to be monogamous. Straight couples are more likely... Lesbian couples are the most likely to be successfully monogamous. Which tells you something about men. That if... (laughs) You want to make marriage safe for monogamy, you need to ban males participating in this institution.
0: We should have talked, like, two weeks ago. (laughs) Sorry about that.
1: You should have come to me for the premarital counseling. I would have turned to your wife and said, you got to marry a lesbian if you want. Find yourself a nice woman
0: and settle down. Right. In the traditional American fashion. That's right. Um, you, you also write about some examples where you've actually gotten letters from people, or a letter that you cite, where you feel like cheating saved a relationship.
1: Absolutely. Um, I am the only uh, member of the sex advice industrial complex who will tell people that sometimes cheating is okay. And not only okay, but sometimes it can save a relationship, save a marriage. You know, you know, when you say cheating is okay, people picture some sort of idyllic relationship, uh, new, newlyweds or small children in the house, and I'm giving people permission to cheat and be dogs. And, th- and that's not true. The, the situations that invariably arise, when you're talking the multi-decade course of a really long-term relationship, people have been together 25 years. They have teenagers or young children that they're still raising, and one person is done with sex. Maybe one person is disabled, maybe one person is ill, and just done with it. And, The other person is literally going out of their minds or has been rejected sexually for 15 years, has not had sex with anybody for 15 years. And that person, and it can be a man or a woman, it's not always the man, um, but that person is ready to walk or cheat. And I look at that marriage and I say, okay, there's a shared history, there are children, you're good partners, you actually do still love each other, maybe cheating is the least worst option. Maybe divorce is worse in that case than cheating, but the culture says you cannot cheat. You must abandon your spouse and children before you cheat. And sometimes I think cheating of the lesser of two evils is permissible. And there are times when cheating is absolutely, positively the right thing to do for your spouse. Just keep your mouth shut and be discreet. Have you ever gotten
0: like pulled into a room?
1: Somebody, somebody's cheering, yeah. and,
0: we'll see you guys and her at the, husband
1: is looking at her like, yeah. what the?
0: <laughs> but on the other hand, we'll see you at the after party. <laughs> um, you sound awesome. <laughs> Did you ever, in your early days of writing Savage Love, get letters or emails or pulled aside by the, the dear Abbeys of the world, the sort of advice cognoscenti, and, and they and told scolded. you... Yeah. Yeah, actually. Not, never never pull this side. We don't have conventions or
1: anything. And Advice columnists are all like vampires. We all hate each other. We don't get along. Like, Prudy hates me, and I hate Prudy, and we all hate Carolyn Hacks, and Carolyn Hacks hates us. Because um, you always think you give better advice than anybody else, and anybody who wrote to them should have written to you. Uh, but there were times when I heard from people saying, you're, you're doing this wrong. You're not allowed to say that. Um, and I ignored them, because I really don't care. When it comes right down to it.
0: You're listening to Live Wire Radio. Our guest is Dan Savage. Who really book. doesn't care. The
1: secret to my success as yeah. an advice columnist is I just don't care.
0: His new book, which he cares, I would assume, to some degree, that you go check out, is American Savage, Insights, Lights, and Fights on Faith, Sex, Love, and Politics. Thank you for having the longest title in the history of books. <laughs> it's pleasure. the last Thank plug you. you're getting. Um... Do you feel like the opinions that you've given or the advice you've given to people has evolved over the last 20-plus years? Based on your... Because I've mentioned this to you before, but I grew up as a kid in Seattle reading Savage Love and just being scandalized by it. And now, you you and your husband started the It Gets Better project. You... I was reading this book. It's a well-written, very, um, you know, direct book that's not about a bunch of gross sex stuff. It's really... You've evolved as a person, right? Is that coming out in the kind of advice you're giving? The gross sex stuff is still in my
1: column. Right. I'm still talking to people who drink urine and want to put an arm on No, I said butt. gross sex stuff. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot we were in Portland. Yeah.
0: As long as... The bar is higher. As long as you ride a fixed-gear bike to the orgy, you'll be okay in Portland. And it's locally sourced urine. That's right. That's exactly the point.
1: Does this urine have a low-carbon footprint? Before <laughs> yeah. I drink it, I'd really like to know.
0: Are you surprised that going from a guy who, who got his start writing about those sorts of topics, uh, are you surprised at the impact that the It Gets Better campaign has actually had? Because I feel like that might really be a thing that helps more people in America when it relates to them understanding who they are and feeling okay about themselves than almost anything that's happened in the last... 30 years.
1: Terry and I... When and I include
0: most Indigo Girls albums, <laughs> which was the previous front runner. And the whole first season of Glee.
1: Yes. Um, honestly, when Terry and I started the It Gets Better project, the goal, our, our, our fond hope was we would get 100 videos. Because we thought if we got 100, we'll get some of everybody. We'll get people of color, we'll get people of all different faiths and parts of the country and different experiences and economic classes. And there are now more than 100,000 videos from all over the world. There, it gets better. Projects in Chile, and Paraguay, and Uruguay, and Argentina, and the United Kingdom, and Australia, and Vietnam. And you know, the the goal though wasn't as many videos as possible. The goal was save lives, and the project has done that. We have heard from thousands of LGBT kids, their parents, emergency room nurses, crediting us and the project with making the difference, with getting them through a tough time. We haven't prevented every LGBT youth suicide. There have been others um, that break our hearts and those get written about, the kids who don't kill themselves never get a newspaper story written about them. Um, But they are out there and you don't have to take my word for it. If you go and look at the videos on YouTube, you can look at the comment threads on each individual It Gets Better video and you can see a kid that that particular video resonated for and reached and touched leaving comments, asking for help, asking for, for referrals, and getting responses from the creators of that particular individual that gets better video. You can see, reading those comment threads, lives being saved in real time. And that was what we wanted. If, if we got ten videos and we saved a life, the project would have been a success. That there are 100,000 videos and it gets better projects popping up in countries all over the world, and so many LGBT kids have been helped and saved, We made one video and and asked other people to jump in and make videos, too. The project has had the impact it's had and the reach it's had because of everyone who participated, everyone who shared their story and their advice and their perspective and how to make it better for all those LGBT kids out there, and we are constantly humbled and floored. NASA released an It Gets Better video this week. NASA. Astronauts talking to LGBT kids.
0: Are they letting gays in space?
1: <laughs> Not like gays in space, but, you know, I grew up watching I Dream of genie the idea that there would be an astronaut out there for me, too, kind of <laughs> Dan,
3: flabbergasted me.
0: we didn't want to, like, let you off the stage without providing you a service, because you have advised so many of us and looked at so many of my pictures I've sent you. Um, we wanted to give you a chance to ask some questions of us, the Livewire team, because we feel like who answers we wondered who answers Dan Savage's questions. So we gave you some time backstage. I believe you and Terry came up with some questions, and uh, we would like to give you an opportunity to pose those to us now. So first, can we welcome Jen Kirkman to the stage? Hi. Jen's going to be back out here in just a few moments. She's an awesome comedian and author. But here, she's going to answer probably the preeminent sex advice columnist in America's Question, so I hope you've been boning. Uh,
1: yes. <laughs> uh, having a kid is definitely domesticated Terry and I just a little bit. Um, but Terry and I did spend last weekend at the International Mr. Leather Contest in Chicago. At what age is it appropriate to inform our teenage son that both of his gay dads own pairs of assless chaps?
5: <laughs> okay, well, first of all, it is redundant assless chaps. All chaps are assless. Um... <laughs> I was liking, um, and I think ours are extra assless. Yeah.
1: Because <laughs> I have no ass. So
5: I think if he's a teenager, he's probably found your leather. Leather is probably a fetish of his because it's so secretive and you guys aren't talking to him about it. Um, I know for me, I was obsessed with my mom's maxi pads that had the belt on them um, that were underneath our kitchen uh, kitchen sink. They were from the 70s, and no one talked to me about it, and I was terrified of wearing a belt and menstruating. And it turned out I didn't need to because the sticky thing was invented by the time I got my period. So talk to your kids or else they're going to have creepy fantasies. Talk to your kids now. There you go. Thank Advice you. from
0: Jen Kirkman. Talk to the kid, Savage.
1: I, I found my mother's maxi pads, and I thought they were a surgical mask.
0: <laughs> True story. All right, next up to answer another a question of Dan Savage's from the Faces for Radio Theater, Andrew Harris is here.
1: Do people actually do that? Or did straight people and lesbians make that up to freak out their gay friends? Okay, uh, Dan, let me tell
3: you there's a lot of things that we have made up to freak out our gay friends. Okay, there's a list. Uh, there's Arbor Day, uh, pleated khakis. Uh, Falcons which strangely enough none of our gay friends were freaked out by those but I guess we're kind of stuck with them now so and uh, Mormons as well so. but actually strangely enough we made that up we created it as the best way of saying honey I'm sorry
0: Andrew Harris ladies and gentlemen and uh, apparently I will be fielding the third and final question from Dan Savage All right. so Terry and
1: I together 18 years going strong uh, Mazel we're, tov. we're both curious do mixed gender relationships ever work out that I'm involved in just generally
0: men and women together is that right it's unnatural I mean I think we can agree on that much it ain't fitting but somehow we continue to try as straight couples to make it work. I think with enough Top Chef and other things to distract you from each other over the course of a lifetime, I think it can work. We,
1: we want it to work because we gay people, we reproduce ourselves out of your bodies. I know. <laughs> right. So we're, we are rooting for you because yeah. you are the cocoons and we are the butterflies. It does feel kind of like...
0: You guys are kind of free riding. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Dan Savage, one more time, Thank please. Thank you. Livewire is brought to you in part by Ergo Depot. Creating a radio show with a knowledgeable staff like ours requires a lot of hunching over laptops and then complaining about it afterwards. But mercifully, it's not too late for our Quasimodo-like writers. That's right, Ergo Depot has human-scale chairs and office furniture designed to promote circulation and good posture. More information can be found at ergodepo.com. Here now with a poem that promotes the concept of the sex advice poet and also how that should be an actual thing. Please welcome the author of Hiding From Salesman and The Sliding Glass Door, poet Scott Poole with Reflections by the Pool.
6: My first letter. The person writing this is actually in my own voice. Strangely enough. <laughs> Dear Sex Advice Poet, I write a lot of poems. Many are love poems. I write stanzas like, While stirring the beef at Taco Bell, I dreamt of your touch and accomplished nothing all day but reverie. <laughs> and, I would gladly rip my ears off if you'd kiss me, for no song is as melodic as the jug band of your lips. <laughs> and when I give these poems to women, They want to have enormous amounts of sex with me. (laughs) I don't know. This is nice and all. But I was really hoping to win a Guggenheim or a Genius Grant by now. I'm worried the Pulitzer ain't coming. I wouldn't mind a cushy tenure at a small liberal arts college with the undying adulation of undergrads who fill the school auditorium every time I read my poems inspired by pictures of grass blades I took in my backyard. Undergrads who later go on to work at literary journals who will print my name on the cover proudly and invite me to Floridian writing conferences has the keynote where you could sip papaya drinks in your flower shorts while you read grass blade poems to other people's undergrads, thus increasing your national poetic. Cachet and your chance of becoming the next poet laureate. (laughs) But so far, it's just enormous amounts of crazy sex with poetry-starved women. (laughs) I have no job. I'm homeless. I just live on the good graces of various lovers about the city. Don't get me wrong, the sex is wonderful. I've had mind-bending orgasms that made me feel like the president of a tropical country wearing a stately-looking hat. I woke up naked in a fountain in Paris once, covered only in lipstick-smeared pages of my journal. I once had sex with six women in one night, and two were on the bus between the other four's apartments. But I still haven't had a poem read by Garrison Keillor on Writer's Almanac. Would it kill the establishment to put me in the New Yorker just once? In fact, I'm being pleasured by a Russian circus performer kneeling on a pile of my rejection letters while I write this. (laughs) Help me. Sincerely, unknown in my own time. Dear unknown, sometimes it's better to die in obscurity. Thank you.
0: That's Scott Poole with Reflections by the Pool. Livewire is sponsored in part by Whole Foods Market. You got a dad or a dad-like person in your life? Father's Day is coming up, and if that fatherly person in your life enjoys, say, like a big slab of manly brisket, Whole Foods has beef with no added growth hormones or antibiotics. Come on. Dad's dealing with enough. What with those student loans he co-signed for you? He doesn't need to be worrying about growth hormones and antibiotics. Ain't nobody got time for that. More information can be found at WholeFoodsMarket.com. We'll be back in just a moment. stand-up comic whose ability to remain knowledgeable about U.S. history after downing an entire bottle of red wine has helped HBO's Drunk History win the jury prize at Sundance. Beyond that unique skill, she's also a regular panelist on Chelsea Lately, has her own amazing podcast called I Seem Fun. Here to tell a story from her new book, I Can Barely Take Care of Myself, Tales from a Happy Life Without Kids, please welcome Jen Kirkman.
5: Maybe we can prevent our kids from hating us for the same reasons that we hated our parents but I have a feeling they'll just end up hating us for a whole new set of reasons which is why I want no part of this cycle I've already tried to influence kids by doing things differently than my parents and I'll tell you right now it didn't work most Saturday nights from 1988 to 1992 you could find me at the Reinhardt's house babysitting their four-year-old son Eli I fell into babysitting for Eli through a friend. I substituted for Eileen one day, and after that fateful afternoon, Eli started saying, don't want Eileen, want Jen to play. And from then on, my Saturday nights belonged to a four-year-old. That was the only time I ever stole a man from another woman. When I interviewed with Mr. Reinhardt for the position of babysitter, or as I think is a more accurate job description, person in charge of making sure someone's kids don't die while they're out seeing a movie, He asked me, so, do you like kids? I was stumped, like kids? I never thought about kids. I didn't know what to tell Mr. Reinhardt. I didn't hate kids, I just never thought about them. Kids evoked an eh emotion in me at best. But I wasn't about to make $8 an hour sitting at home with my parents on a Saturday night. So I told my first, but most definitely not my last white lie on the subject. Yes, I love kids, I'm great with them. Babysitting every Saturday night f- felt like the world's most boring New Year's Eve as I sat there counting down the last hour before Eli's bedtime. One night, Eli couldn't sleep. He was talking as if he'd been reading a Nietzsche pop-up book. <laughs> right before I was about to turn out the light, he asked, Jen, is there a God? Me, um, well, what does your mom say about God? <laughs> Eli, I never asked her. I just thought of it. Me, why don't you wait and ask your mom about God in the morning? She has all the answers. Eli, I thought all grown-ups knew. You're a grown-up. He persisted. If God can see me, why can't I see him? A Jewish kid wanted a Catholic girl to explain to him why we can't see God. Oy, boy. Then he started to get hysterical. I don't want God watching me sleep. (laughs) When I was a little older than Eli, my mom tucked me in every night, and we said that prayer. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That prayer is comforting if you're 90 and on a respirator. (laughs) It doesn't make much sense for a healthy eight-year-old. Standing in Eli's doorway, looking at his innocent little face, I didn't have the heart to just turn the light out and ignore him. I wouldn't have to wait until I had my own kids. This was my moment to make an impact on the youth of America by doing the exact opposite of what my parents did. I would not tell him that there is a God waiting to take him in his sleep. While I racked my brain for the best way to answer his question without really answering his question, Eli, in the manner of children everywhere with too much time on their hands, came up with more questions, such as, When am I going to die? I knew I had to protect him and let him remain a kid. For tonight, in order to protect him and get me out of his room and onto the bag of Oreos waiting for me in the Reinhardt's kitchen, I would lie my ass off. Oh, Eli, I said, you will live to be 200 years old before you die. And that is a very, very long time from now. I was proud of myself until Eli said, so I'm going to die? I said, no, 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 I mean, if you die, you will die at 200. But not everybody dies. Eli said, so some people die and some don't? Um, yes. Eli said, then why did God make my grandpa die? Oh, okay. Uh... Eli then asked me, can I die if I turn 200 and if I'm murdered in my bed? How did this kid know about murder? He's right. Murder is scary, and it's real, even in seemingly safe havens like where I grew up in Needham, Massachusetts. Some guy in our town had chopped his wife into tiny pieces in their bathtub, just streets away from where little Eli Reinhardt lived. I was terrified of murder myself, and to be honest, I didn't like the idea of the Reinhardts sliding glass doors in their living room. Sure, they had locks, but I could just picture the murderer tossing his axe through the thin glass, shattering it, and then walking purposefully toward me with a bloodthirsty gleam in his eye, and I'd scream, but I don't even really live here! (laughs) As if that would be a good reason for him not to murder me. I still had a chance to be a good substitute parent. I told Eli that there is no such thing as murder. I told him it's just a thing he sees on TV, but it's not actually something that is physically possible. People can't kill other people, so he had nothing to worry about. I had no idea that kids under the age of five had the capacity to remember things from week to week. I thought Eli would have forgotten all about murder and dying at age 200 by the time I saw him seven days later. Nope. Eli wanted me to sleep on his floor next to him. And as I lay there, he worried out loud that his parents would get murdered. He asked, if my parents were murdered, would you live here and take care of me? How did I go from favorite babysitter to guardian in case of a double homicide? (laughs) I reinstated my lie to Eli. Eli, no one is getting murdered. I told you it's not real. Should I tell the Reinharts about Eli's obsession with untimely death? I couldn't tell them that I slept on this floor. That would make me sound like some kind of perv. I felt like I f***ed up this kid for life. Maybe there is something parents know that babysitters don't, like how to properly and with authority squelch all conversations about stabbings and how to not do what the kid wants just so you can get what you want because eventually that type of negotiation brings everyone down. A few weeks later, Mrs. Reinhart talked to me, woman to teenager, about the little boy we were raising. She was distraught because Eli kept saying that he wanted to stab people to see if they would die. (laughs) Ever since I told Eli there was no such thing as murder, he had apparently gotten confused and became sort of obsessed with this crime. She said that Eli was also mad at God for picking his grandfather to die. She asked me, Jennifer, why was he thinking such things? How did these ideas get put in his head? They eventually stopped calling me. I'm sure that wasn't Eli's decision. After all, I was to be his godmother after his parents were found bludgeoned in their beds by the Massachusetts murderer.
0: Jen Kirkman, ladies and gentlemen. I, I will admit that when I was reading your book, I started to feel deeply regretful about all of the times I've had conversations with people Particularly gals uh-huh. who say, I'm not interested in having a kid, uh-huh. and I will admit to having the thought like, oh, you, you will someday.
5: I bet they didn't just come up to you and say, I don't want a kid. That was your small talk making, I get it?
0: approached all the time on the street oh. <laughs> with that statement. Because
5: someone said to me, it's actually a small talk epidemic in this country, that, that the first thing you think to say to someone at a party is, are you married? Do you have kids? Instead of just saying like, hey, have you seen any good movies lately, or... What time is it, you know? Right.
0: <laughs> That's the other thing people ask me on the street.
5: <laughs> that would make more sense. Yeah, and it's... It, well, I think for men, too, you think, of course you'll change your mind.
0: Well, I feel like I know so many people, men and women, mm-hmm. who... At one point did not want to have children and then later on decided it was important to them yeah that it's hard for me to know and why my knowing matters I don't understand probably doesn't that's
5: a good point right
0: It's hard for me to know yeah. which people are just genuinely not going to have kids and which ones just don't know it yet.
5: It's like bisexual and gay it's like it really shouldn't matter to anyone but sometimes you just know that it's really not for you all my friends that have changed their mind they were always on the fence. I was just born this way I have no maternal instinct or You know, I sponsor kids in Cambodia and things of that nature. Yes, I thank you. But if I don't like babies screaming on a plane, people get very angry at me. But I'm not the one that put a toddler in the sky and told them to deal with it.
0: (laughs) Uh, You also just recently started this uh, podcast. Yes. Which I uh, have listened to all of the episodes. It's quite remarkable. It has no intro music. You're just lying in bed, mostly. Yeah. Just talking for a half hour straight. You don't want there to be any guests on your podcast. No. What, like, what exactly motivated you to one day get a microphone while you're lying in bed and just share your feelings with us, the world?
5: I used to do that when I was a little kid. I'd lay in bed with one of those tape recorder uh, things that you put a microphone in, and I used to pretend I was a DJ. And I would put music on and and have my own radio show in my bedroom because I wasn't allowed to do anything growing up and I wasn't allowed to have a TV in my room and so I would just talk to myself in my bedroom. Um... And yeah, I don't want guests because I don't want to have to have anyone over or be responsible for anyone's happiness or get two microphones. And yeah, so I just talk about, you know, a different topic every week and I let my mind wander and, and hopefully it comes back to what the point was, which is never anything serious. I've talked about how customer service is failing in this country. And I've talked about um, the New York Times vows section and how bizarre that is and uh, just stupid things that occur to me.
0: You call it I seem fun. Yeah. What is that a reference to? You're not actually fun? Oh,
5: I'm not a fun at all. Um, People from various projects I work on, you know, whether it's drunk history or a show like Chelsea Lately, people seem to think I'm fun and someone they want to drink with, but I don't leave the house. So uh, I appear fun, but I am not.
0: One of my favorite moments was when you did an impression of your mom in Fleeting. Can you guess? Oh,
5: yeah, this. Oh, us a uh, this is my mom from Boston um, I Always smiling, uh, never happy. I I an, an episode recently where I talked a my mom of a painting of Jesus in her bedroom. It's like the hot Jesus. It's like Brad Pitt mixed with Kurt Cobain uh, eyes, you know. And um, she said, "Oh yeah." I, she finally told me after thirty eight years that painting is your grandmother's cousin. He, he murdered his wife, went to prison, deeply religious, of painted that painting in prison of Jesus. And I I talked about it on the podcast, and she called me yesterday. You need to do a retraction on your podcast about that Jesus painting. It was your grandfather's cousin, and he didn't paint it. He made the frame, and another inmate painted it. But he did kill his wife. But it was because he found her in bed with another man. So I was like, he shot her in the face. (laughs)
0: Why don't you talk like your mom? She sounds delightful. Like, you don't know, have an she, accent like she I know.
5: Does. She makes everything sound more fun. But I had a teacher in third grade who didn't like my accent.
0: Yeah, well, you dedicated this book. You, you, you anti-dedicated it to a teacher who gave you a hard time, right?
5: Oh, yeah, a different teacher. In fifth grade, I had a really mean teacher. I used to raise my hand and, and offer to tell stories in front of the class. And when I did, she would let me, but then the boys were really mean and they would bully me and make fun of me and throw things at me and they put rocks and snowballs and all that kind of stuff. So I told the teacher, these boys are making fun of me. And she took me aside and said, listen, when we're a little bit different and we put ourselves out there and kids don't like it, it's best to just stop doing that. (laughs) And so one day an author came to class and I wrote a short story. And the author said, I think you're going to be a writer someday. And my teacher went, that's what I tell her. And I got really angry. I went, no, you effing don't. And um, I had to go to anger management starting in fifth grade. And so I undedicated the book to her and said, you were wrong about everything you told me. And my mother hates it. Jennifer, she has cancer now. I said, well, everyone gets cancer. It doesn't mean you have to be an ass when you're, you don't have it.
0: Well, there you go, Jen Kirkman. Thank the book you. is I Can Barely <laughs> Take Care of Myself. Thank you. Tonight's show is brought to you in part by New Belgium Brewing, who present Beer School. All right, let's go back to basics on this one, you guys. What is a hop? I know we've all nodded knowingly when someone talks about hops, but are we prepared to back that nod up with actual knowledge? Listen, a hop is nothing more than the flower of a hop plant. It looks like a little green pine cone, and it gives beer its structure as well as tangy flavor. That's why people call certain beers hoppy. Now you can finally nod with confidence. You're welcome, America. Oh, and also thanks to New Belgium Brewing for sponsoring Livewire. More information available at newbelgium.com. All right, one more time. Please welcome the builders and the butchers.
2: I spent too many days on that killing floor My darling told me, Daddy, don't go back to work no more My eyes hang low and weary as I'm heading out the door But the blood on my hands, it's painted blood Oh, the blood on my hands, it's painted blood just a child when they sent me off to war. I was turned into a killer, left me rotten to the core. My priests and politicians bent on evening the score. With the blood on my hands, it's painted blood. Setting Sun Cecile Your man lay dead in the Setting Sun Cecile Your man lay dead in the setting sun A cowboy rides With a smoking gun Your man lay dead in the setting Sun Cecile Your man came home in a cheap Hot box Cecile Your man came home in a cheap Hot box seal Man came home in a cheap hard box. Black veil over your scarlet locks. Man came home in a cheap hard box to steal.
0: Thank you to the Builders and the Butchers and the rest of our guests. Ladies and gentlemen, that's our show. Our thanks to our guests, Jen Kirkman, Dan Savage, and the Builders and the Butchers. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners like you find beautiful people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. Our show is also produced by Courtney Haumeister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theater are Paul Glazer. Trisha Ferguson, and Andrew Harris. Our head writer is Courtney Hommeister. Show writers are Sean McGrath, Jason Rouse, and Scott Poole. Our guest writer this show was Alex Falcone, sound effects and direction by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom, with house sound by Graham Nystrom, stage management by Mark Bau. Special thanks to Rose City Sound. Show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Vondrelli, photography by Jenny Baker, Live Wire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire, visit LiveWireradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at LiveWire Radio.